The words that I'd like to direct your attention to today are found once again in the book of First Timothy. So if you turn to First Timothy chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 3 through 7. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, we, we heed the warning in these verses that there are some who drift from your clear teaching into false teaching. And Lord, we realize that that's something we are all susceptible to. None of us are infallible. All of us can be deceived and even blinded in ignorance of our own blindness. And so we really are in, in, de- uh, in need for your grace to give us a clear understanding so that we might rightly interpret your word. And I pray that you would guard this church from every form of false teaching. Or that you would grant us discernment and depth of conviction and clarity of thought. So that we would discern what is right and hold fast to what is right, but also have discernment to see what is wrong. To know what we need to ignore or even confront. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are a lot of threats to the church, and there always has been since it began. But I think it goes without saying that the greatest threat to the church has always been false teaching. And I would say that's even the greatest threat to our individual church. It's the, the, the threat. The greatest threat is not a, a failure to grow financially or numerically. It's not a failure to be embraced by the culture at large. Uh, it's not even a failure to evangelize or a failure to disciple. And I think all those things might be bad. But if false teaching takes hold of a church, even growth will only make things worse rather than good. New believers would be discipled in a church full of error and the finances that might have been brought in would only be wasted on propagating that error. And so churches that are corrupted by by false teachings will quickly die. And they're like, pardon the analogy, but they're like zombies. They appear alive, but they're really dead. They're dead and deadly, and they do bad things to your brain if they get a hold of you. Or to illustrate this for Star Trek fans, they're like Starfleet commanders who get captured by the Borg. 
On the outside, they generally look the same, but they're no longer on your side. False teaching, I think, has always been the greatest threat to the church. And that's why Paul, out of the gate in his letter to Timothy, he he hesitates not a bit in telling Timothy, Timothy, you need to deal with this problem in the church and deal with it decisively. And in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, he gives three things. He tells the command, he presents the command, the aim of the command, and then he gives the reason for the command being issued. So let's look first of all at the command that's in verses 3 through 4. He says, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And the first word I want to draw your attention to is the main word in this chapter, really, and that's the word instruction. Uh, the word is paraangelane, which means to announce something that must be done. It's actually a military term. Uh, usually it's translated to order or to command. So the, oh, thank you. So the translation that the New American Standard gives uh, to instruct is really a pretty soft translation. Really, charge, I think the ESV has, or command is actually, I think, the best translation here. The word pictures the passing down of commands from a supreme commander to his subordinates. So you can think of uh, marching orders. Just as the Apostle Paul receives his orders from Christ, Paul then passes these orders down to Timothy, who is then going to give them to these false teachers. So this would be like a battalion commander in the army informing some of his staff sergeants that they need to stop fraternizing with the enemy. And this command is coming straight from the president. So this is a big deal. It's a command with authority. Paul is not saying, well, it might be in your best interest, Timothy, to talk to these false teachers, have a conversation, get to understand them a little bit better. No, he says, tell them to stop teaching falsely. And if the false teachers disregard Timothy, this would really be akin to disregarding Christ. Because the orders don't just come from Timothy. They don't just come from Paul. They come really from Christ as he passes them down to his representatives. And the first phrase in verse 3 shows that this really is no new problem. He says, as I urged you before. So when Paul was there in Ephesus previously, could have been months or weeks before, we don't know exactly, but he had seen this need to keep Timothy there to address this problem. Timothy had probably already been about challenging some of these false teachers to stop teaching, probably confronting them. And I actually think that Paul wrote the letter really to affirm that what Timothy is doing isn't just of Timothy's own guidance. This is really coming from him and ultimately from Christ. So it's not so much to exhort Timothy as much to exhort the church and the false teachers in particular. So again, it's like battalion commanders showing the sergeants the, the presidential order and seal saying, this isn't just my intention. This is coming from the supreme command, the commander in chief. And the specific mission given to Timothy is to charge these teachers to stop teaching falsely. 
And there are two elements in this command of the false teachers. And that's pretty obvious there. First of all, not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Stop teaching strange doctrines. Stop paying attention to myths. That word strange doctrine in the first part of the command is heterodidoskaleo. Sorry, my Greek is rusty. Literally what it says, hetero, other than didoskaleo, teachings. Teachings that are different. Other teachings. Literally, this refers to any other doctrines, any other teaching that is not rooted in the Bible or a correct interpretation of the Bible, which really gives us our definition for false doctrine. You might want to write this down, but this is what a false doctrine is. It is any teaching that is posing as Christian instruction that is not rooted in a correct interpretation of the Bible. Any teaching that is posing as Christian instruction that is not rooted in a correct interpretation of the Bible. A couple of elements of that. First of all, it needs to be posing as Christian instruction, right? Just because it may not come from the Bible doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong, right? Could be a, 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 an economic theory or um, a scientific um, theory. Not necessarily wrong. If just because the Bible doesn't talk about it doesn't mean it's wrong, right? So it's teachings that are posing as Christian instruction, but it also needs to be rooted in the Bible, but not just rooted in the Bible, because there's lots of false teachings, including the one that Paul addresses that appear to be rooted in the Bible, but are not based on a right interpretation of the Bible. So it's not enough just to be able to point to a verse to support one's view. One needs to look at the whole of scripture and the author's intent, which that verse is rooted in. So again, false teaching refers to any teaching that is posing as Christian instruction that is not rooted in a correct interpretation of the Bible. And it's interesting, the only other time this word is used, heterodidoskeleo, is in chapter 6, verse 3. So you can just flip the page over and look at it. Where Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, same word, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What I want to point out to you is there in verse three. A different doctrine is anything that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, where do we have the words of our Lord Jesus Christ? It's not just the Gospels. It's the whole of Scripture. All of it is the Word of God. And anything that does not line up with the Word of God is therefore false doctrine. So what should you do if you encounter a false teacher? the logical question to ask. Well, I think the first thing in light of what false doctrine is, is you need to point out to them what they're teaching or what they believe, just how it doesn't line up with scripture. Instead of just saying, wow, it just doesn't sound right. Think through why not? What passages are they forgetting or forsaking or twisting? And if they're unpersuaded, instead of getting into a fruitless argument, 
Paul warns Timothy, don't get into these fruitless arguments. Just simply point out, point to them these two passages in Timothy. First Timothy chapter one, verse three and first Timothy chapter six, verse three. You might mark this in your Bible when confronted with a false teacher. What are the two passages I go to? First Timothy chapter one and first Timothy chapter six. Help them see that they are teaching false doctrine if what they're saying doesn't actually line up with the correct interpretation of the Bible. Because that's what false doctrine is. It doesn't matter how many philosophers they state. It doesn't even matter what uh, Bible teachers they quote. If it doesn't line up with the Bible, it's false. And they need to see that. And so this especially, I think, is important to, to recognize. When dealing with false teaching... Do not look for areas of agreement. And I say that because I think there's part of us as Americans, I think even as Christians, we want to be sympathetic. We want to be empathetic, right? That's the word for the, the year. We want to find some way of agreeing and, and, and legitimizing, validating somebody's belief. But the danger in doing so is that you might be affirming them when you should be confronting them. You want to stay focused on these areas of disagreement with the Bible. For instance, when a person needs surgery, right? There's something wrong inside of them that needs to get fixed or removed, like a tumor, right? The surgeon, when that person is laid out on the operating table, doesn't like check out and, and notice, look for all the healthy parts. Let's just, let's draw attention to all the healthy parts, and let's just ignore the thing that's bad. No, they are there to get rid of the bad stuff. Who cares about the healthy parts? If it's good, good. They're there to deal with the bad problem. That's where they focus all their time and energy, and that's what we need to focus on. Great. If, the, if we can line up with other agreements, great. That's not our threat. That's not our concern for them or for others. We're concerned with a place where they don't line up with Scripture. Focus your attention there. Because it's often the identification of common ground that justifies false teaching. Almost every time when false teaching gets in the church, it's because people sympathize with one element that may be right. And then because they agree with that, then they just allow all the other junk that comes with it to corrupt the church. Just historically speaking, for instance, uh, one might want to propagate uh, Nazi, Nazism in uh, the 1940s in Germany, in 1930s. And they, and they might say, well, yeah, I guess the Jews did persecute the early church. And, you know, L Martin Luther later in his life, he, he kind of got bitter towards the Jews. So maybe there's something to be said here. And then all of a sudden the church is, has the Nazi flag flying. Or maybe um, the Marxism is getting propagated. And, and somebody points out, well, you know, you look at the beginning of Acts and the church in the early church, they did share all things in common. Right. So Marxism really isn't that opposed to Christianity. And Marxism creeps into the church. LGBTQ movement. Somebody says, well, Christians, right. Christianity is all about promoting love and harmony. Right. We don't want to be promoters of hate. And then all of a sudden. There's no standard for sexual morality. One point of agreement is often all it takes to dupe a person into thinking that they should accept the whole system. And it's true. 
So our, our, we should, it's okay to notice areas of agreement, but all our conversation when dealing with false teaching, if you see something that's not right, that's where you need to put your focus. And, and don't back off from that. Say, no, this is where you, you have to correct what you're saying. Or I can have nothing more to do with you. And the particular false teaching in the church at Ephesus was apparently tied to myths and genealogies. Thus, the second element to the command, nor pay attention to myths and genealogies. The word myths, just like today, refers to legendary tales, tales that weren't true, but maybe had some good moral lesson. So just like the Greek myths, except these were Jewish myths. And we know that they're Jewish myths because of chapter one, verse seven. They were associated with the Old Testament law. And Paul actually mentions these myths three more times in the pastoral epistles. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4, 7, then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, and then in Titus 1, 14. And actually, if you want to flip to Titus 1, 14, notice what it says about them that, in that reference. Titus 1, 14. Nor, nor paying, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Right. So these are particularly Jewish myths rooted in Jewish history or the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, that end up turning people away from the truth. Right. So their mythology is driving their interpretation. That's what's going on. So <laughs> this would be something like uh, getting a, a, the, the J.R.R. Tolkien study Bible. Right, reading the Bible through J.R.R. Tolkien. Nothing wrong with Tolkien. We like Tolkien. Or the, the Chronicles of Narnia study Bible. Or, you know, the Star Wars study Bible. Man, that might sell a lot of copies, especially in our um, culture. But the, it's not the mythology that should drive the scripture. If the mythology sends the line up, great. But that's not what the attention should be drawn towards. Rather, the attention should be drawn towards the Bible. It's not, it's, one is getting in front of the other, and it's the wrong one. It's the mythology driving the scriptures, not scripture informing the mythology. And no one knows precisely what these myths were, nor do we need to, because the very point Paul is making is they're not helpful. Don't pay attention to them. They're legendary stories that aren't leading people to the truth or to growth in Christ's likeness, but away from it. And apparently genealogies were another element in these false teachings. Paul calls them endless, maybe because they just stretch way back into prehistory. Or they were perhaps built by speculation from the patriarchal narratives in the Old Testament. Maybe, again, we can only we can only speculate as to what they were actually teaching, but it's somehow built in the Old Testament law, has something to do with genealogies, because there's this connection with them wanting to be teachers of the law in verse 7. So I would guess that these teachers were using the genealogies to kind of point out someone's spiritual significance. Maybe if they could find their connection to one of the, the patriarchs in the Old Testament, then they would have a sense of greater spiritual significance or maybe that's where their confidence in their salvation would be rather than in christ finding out how they relate their their ancestry is related to somebody that's mentioned in the old testament law but at the end of the day we don't know what the precise content was in these teachings but again we don't need to 
Because the very point Paul is making is they're not helpful. Don't pay attention to them. It's it's an inaccurate approach to Scripture. That's not what the genealogies were for. Right? I don't need to know the precise ingredients in a Twinkie to know that it's unhealthy. Just tell me it's unhealthy. All right, it's enough. I don't need to know the ingredients in rat poison to know that I shouldn't consume it. In fact, if I do the ingredients, I probably wouldn't even know what I was reading. One of you chemists probably would and can confirm, yes, this is bad. But honestly, I don't need to know it. It's, it's the consequence of these false teachings, not the content that Paul is most concerned about. Right? He says, which give rise to mere speculation rather than the furthering of the administration of God, which is by faith. So notice what Paul is doing here. He's contrasting the result of the false teaching with the result of biblical instruction. Right? The false teaching leads to speculation versus the apostles' teaching, which leads to the administration of God, which is by faith. So the problem with these teachings is that they're not rooted in truth. They're rooted in speculation, in myth. And therefore they lead to uncertainty rather than certainty. So to illustrate this again, uh, imagine that you get lost and, and you have enough humility to go and ask for directions. And the person that you approach to ask for directions, the first thing they do is they take your GPS away from you and your map and they say, ignore those things. Instead, what I, in order to get to the place where you're trying to go, I, it's, it's in the southerly direction. And all you need to do is follow your heart and eventually you'll get there. Right? You would be better off not asking them for directions in the first place because they don't even know. And that's kind of what these false teachers are doing. There's no certainty. Now, it sounds humorous, except that these, these teachers were actually posing as Bible teachers. So the, the consequence is not just locational lostness, but spiritual lostness, possibly, possibly even infinite eternal lostness. This is a big deal. That's why Paul says in the, initially in his letter, deal with this issue, Timothy. Because they're making shipwreck of people's faith. The word, notice, uh, administration that Paul uses here. Sometimes it's translated dispensation or stewardship. Actually, even edification it's translated. It's the word oikodomion. Oikodomion. And it's a compound word made up of the word oikos, which means house or household. We saw that earlier. And namas, which means law. Quite literally, what the word means is the, the, the house rules. The way the house is administrated. The law of the house. How administration of the affairs of the household go- happens. And the word really is referring to the redemptive plan of God in salvation as revealed in the Bible. Right? We saw that word in Ephesians chapter 1. That's why it was our scripture reading. When, where Paul presents the administration of God that, was, that began in eternity past and was, has now been revealed to the saints. 
right? Ephesians 1 verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's redemptive plan to restore man to himself is rooted in the work of Christ. And it was his plan was to build for himself a new household, not just through the Jews, but through Jews and Gentiles together. Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter three and Ephesians chapter four to make it for himself one new man, one new family founded upon the work of Christ and then instructed, informed through his word, through the teachings of the, the Old Testament and the teachings of the New Testament founded upon the apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers, he says in chapter four of Ephesians. And in chapter three of first Timothy, we're told that the church is to be led by qualified elders who will help the church to grow up into the maturity through the preaching of the word of God. And Paul calls it, therefore, the administration that is by faith. God brings about the accomplishment of his purposes through the preaching of the word and through faith in what is preached. It's faith in the revealed word. Therefore, it's faith in certainty, faith in the truth, not faith in speculation like what the false teachers are drumming up. Right. Salvation isn't speculative. One does not need to be tossed back and forth and wonder, are they saved or are they not saved? How does one know if they're saved? Do you believe you're a sinner and that Christ is a sufficient savior? Yes. Then you're saved. Are you repentant from your sin? I guess you should add to that. Then demonstrate it. Continue to follow Christ. Are you obedient to his word? Right. So salvation is not found in genealogies. It's not found in myth. It's found in the blood of Christ in the gospel. Right. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, not mythology, not genealogies. But just as salvation isn't speculative, neither is sanctification. Right. Why do we know, just as we heard in Bernadette's testimony, why, how can one know that they truly are growing in Christ? Because they're obedient to his word. They don't just believe it. They show their belief through their obedience. So even sanctification isn't speculative. One doesn't have to wonder if they're growing spiritually. They just have to look at their life. Are they obeying what the Bible teaches? And if they are, they, it will be obvious to them and others. So that's this emphasis that's given in this letter to teach, to command, to obey the scriptures. God's plan of redemption and God's plan of restoration is tied inextricably to his revelation. Right. One is saved through hearing the gospel preached through the certainty of the word preached. It's not speculative. It is certain. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. I want to point something out to you. Colossians chapter 1. Paul says this in verse 24. Notice how he uses the word administration here. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according 
to the administration from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generation, but is now revealed to his saints. Do you see that? The administration is tied both to the gospel, but the gospel as revealed in the word of God, in the entirety of the word of God. His goal is to make the word of God fully known so that they might grow up into Christ's likeness. God's plan is the word of God. As it's revealed in the word of God, salvation in Christ, sanctification in obedience to his word. So these false teachers that Timothy needs to, to confront. At least root some of their teachings in the Old Testament law. So they appear good. They appear even healthy. Maybe there's they're persuasive at some element because they're actually drawing people away from they're, they're effective. People are actually being drawn away. And often false teaching, that's how it presents itself. It at first does seem very attractive, seems very reasonable. But in the end, instead of leading people towards Christ and in, towards obedience to his truth, according to his house rules, they're leading somebody off the path into wandering away. This, is, this was what John Bunyan wanted to articulate time and time again in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. Initially, even as a Christian hears the gospel from evangelists, one of the first persons he comes across is worldly wise man. And worldly wise men says, oh, you don't need to take evangelist way because that's hard. That's full of suffering. And that burden's just going to feel on your back. It's just going to feel heavier and deeper. I'll show you an easier way. And instead of <laughs> where he directs him to is the hill of difficulty and legal and, and uh, legalism. And he's nearly crushed. And the evangelist shows up again as he's terrified for his life, as his life is in danger. As he stands at the foot of this. Uh, smoking mountain. In order to avoid such difficulties, Paul tells Timothy, the way you're going to preserve the church from these deceivers is by calling them out. Tell them to stop teaching that anything that is not in accordance with the Bible and a correct interpretation of the Bible. And then he reminds Timothy of the aim of this command. He says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That first word, but, is important because it shows that he's contrasting the result of the false teaching, speculation, with biblical teaching, which is love, as he explains. Notice what he says the goal is, though the goal of, it's of instruction. The aim of his instruction is. That word is actually the same word that was used in verse 3, which we've already talked about. That word that should be translated charge or command. So he's referring actually to the command to tell the teachers to stop teaching falsely. He uses the word again in verse 18. This whole chapter is about, is referencing this command for Timothy to, to tell the teachers to stop teaching falsely. And that word that is, uh, used the, the, the translated goal or aim or or um, uh, the result is the word telos, which refers to an end, the, the, the purpose, 
the, the long-term goal of the instruction. And notice that the ultimate goal or aim of this commanding stop t- uh, to commanding false teachers to stop teaching falsely. Notice what that end is. What is the end of or goal of the command to tell the false teachers to stop teaching falsely. It's not to kick them in the teeth. It's not to expose their error. It's not to prove that you're right, Timothy, and they're wrong. The goal is love. The aim of this command to tell them to stop is to love them, Timothy, and to get them to love the church, to get them to be restored And the fact of the matter is, really, the aim of any command, the command to tell false teachers to stop teaching falsely, or any other command that we find in Scripture, the aim of all biblical commands is love. And we know it's partially because of what Jesus said when he was asked, well, what is the sum of, or the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is this, to love your neighbors yourself. In Matthew 22:37, he says this, and then in verse 40, he says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything is rooted in these commands of love. Like, love is the supreme goal. And not, he's not talking about sentimentality. He's talking about conformity to Christ's likeness, ultimately. True love, biblical love. And as you know, Jesus is quoting here the Shema. Right? Hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And speaking of the Shema, I think that's exactly, that's what's on Paul's mind because notice how he delineates where love comes from. Right? From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He's referring to the three aspects of man. Right? The first phrase there, pure heart, is katharos cardias. You might recognize that first word, katharos, where we get the word catharsis. It means clean. A clean heart. When a person has a clean heart, it means there's, there's no corruption. There's no filth uh, corrupting a person's motives in their teaching. Their aims are in line with God's aims. As it says in 2 Timothy 2.22, where Paul tells Timothy to Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Timothy, don't, be, don't have mixed motives like these other false teachers. Instead, pursue things that show that you call upon the Lord from a pure heart. You have pure motives. Also, it comes from a good conscience. Paul describes the conscience here as good because in 1 Timothy 4.2, he points out that the conscience can be seared. And according to Titus 1.15, the conscience can be defiled. So Paul's referring to a good conscience, that is a, a healthy and honest conscience. The kind of conscience that Paul describes of himself in Acts 23.1, when he says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. In other words, Paul says, I can't... I can't see anything in my motives or in my actions that I would it, that I would not um, that I that I'm ashamed of. I've done everything I could to honor the Lord. I have a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says, 
the Greek word translated sincere is unhypocritu, unhypocritical faith, sincere faith. That is one's confidence in Christ and in his word is real. It's not just show. They actually believe that what the Bible says is right and good. Therefore, they want to obey it. They're not offended by the Bible. They love the Bible. Even when the Bible hurts and challenges them in things that are uncomfortable. Love, he's saying, is the natural result of this genuine faith in Christ. And this lines up with what the Apostle John says in 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. What John is saying in his epistle is that the new birth changes us from being lovers of self to being lovers of God. We now want to love. So the aim of Therefore, all of Christian commands really is to love, to do what we've been born again to do. So the goal of love, recognize, is to bring about more love. So Paul's not just saying the aim of your teaching, Timothy, is to make sure you love in all you do. That's true, but it's not just what Timothy feels internally. It's what Timothy's teaching results in. Timothy doesn't want to just be loving. He wants to his teaching to result in love. So it's Loving others so that more and more and more love overflows to other people. Love resulting in more love. So Paul's aim in issuing this command to the false teachers is that they would be loved back into love by Timothy. He wants the teachers to be restored so that their motives are aligned with God's motives. He doesn't just want them to be kicked out of the church. He wants them to be restored. Help them to see that they're no longer serving Christ but themselves. Or even worse, the doctrines of demons. But in order to produce love in their ministry, these false teachers need to be lovingly rebuked so that they can get back on track. And this really parallels his instructions to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the next letter he writes. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, he spells out to Timothy that uh, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. You see the heart of what Paul is saying. It's not, get them out of the church, Timothy. Show them they're right and they're wrong. No, it's, Timothy, these are your former brothers. They claim to work alongside you. Quite likely, these, some of these men are even fellow elders in uh, the church of Ephesus. If you, if you think about what Paul read, uh, said in Acts chapter 20. These are family members. That God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We can't miss Paul's heart here. We must never forget that the goal of confrontation is always restoration. The goal is always loving them. That means wanting what is best for them. 
Now, you can't change them. We can't change a person's heart, but we can show them the truth and we can pray for them and we can be patient with them. And correct them with gentleness. Again, the, the goal is not defending ourselves or proving our point. It's not getting another person to finally just submit to us. It's that they would be restored to God. I think often where Christians err is, is, is we think that we're defending the truth. And we're so focused on the truth that we, we fail to recognize that, that really what we're defending is that we are right. The goal is to prove that we are right rather than uh, simply loving the person. It's good to defend the truth, but again, the aim of the truth is love. Right? If you want to defend the truth and you really are defending the truth and not just defending yourself and your own intellect and your own education, own political persuasion, whatever. Are you loving the person? What is your goal? What is it that you want? And if you can, if you can know with absolute confidence that you really want what's best for this person in light of what the scripture says is best, then you can have confidence that what you're doing is right. But far too often, people are just being driven in their love for the truth, not so much by a love for the truth, but a love for being right. And we need to be cautious here. Speaking to future shepherds, Jesus once gave this parable. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that wandered away? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never wandered away. So it is not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, I emphasize that I read that parable, the word wandered away, and this is why. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Where he says, speaking of these false teachers in the same letter, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away. Same word. Wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Again, we, we need to think of false teachers within the church, not just as enemies, but as family members who have been snared by Satan and captivated to do his will. If your son or daughter got caught up in some sort of a drug addiction or got deceived into following some weird cult, the goal as you interact with them is not just to punch them in the mouth to shame them, to, to kick them out of your life. No, if you really love them, your goal is you want to see them pulled out of that error. You want to see them restored. You want to see them healthy again because they're your son or your daughter or your brother or your sister. Right? This is, this is the house rules. This, Paul is writing Timothy. He wants Timothy to, understand, to, to clearly explain to this church how does a church function. It functions like a family. 
right? Driven by love. And so far we've looked at the command to stop false teaching, the aim of the command, which is love. And finally, briefly, we'll look at the reason for the command. Verses 6 and 7. He says, straying from these. So this is a reference back to the previous verse. These false teachers strayed from the aim of love and they've wandered off the path of truth into fruitless discussion. Their, Their teachings doesn't build people up. It actually causes dissension. Literally, the word fruitless discussion literally means useless talk. Made up the word logos and matayos. Matai logion is the word. Logos meaning word, matayos meaning that which is devoid of force, devoid of purpose, devoid of truth. That which is impotent, has no success. It doesn't result in anything good. So these are, he's talking about conversations, useless words that have no purpose. They're just aimless. See, unlike the apostles' teaching that's rooted in the word of God, and as the psalmist says, which is a light unto my path, right? A lamp to my feet. These false teachers, instead of shining the light on people's path so they know where to go, they're getting people off the road where they wander into thickets and briars, piercing them through with many pangs. Again, they're like a bunch of guides with faulty maps and broken compasses, arguing with one another even about which direction they should go. Each insisting that his own way is right. And they argue with one another and they wander around in the woods for a while, still making no more headway than they did at the beginning. Just wasting time and getting in a fight. Because they don't recognize that they themselves are at fault. Notice what he says. think to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Right? The problem is they're ignorant and they're blind to their own ignorance. See, they want to be teachers of the law. So this is a reference to the Old Testament law, which shows again that their, their teachings are pseudo-biblical. They, they fancy themselves Bible teachers, but they don't know how to interpret the Bible rightly. Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Right? The person who doesn't even recognize that they themselves might possibly be at fault is the biggest fool of all. And that's why it's leading to all this controversy. It reminds me of something my... One of my old roommates used to say, uh, he, he, uh, he, he loved working on cars. He was somewhat of a mechanic. And um, one day he told me, so I was asking him about the car he was working on. He says, Joseph, I, I know enough about cars to be dangerous. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? And so he explained, he says, I know enough about cars that I could get myself into serious problems because I don't know as much as I like to think I do. And likewise, these false trouble, false, sorry, false teachers know enough about the Bible to be dangerous. But they're ignorant of what they don't even know. Yet they think they know with certainty. Right? They make confident assertions, it says. So this tells us that these false teachers, 
have no idea that what they're teaching is false. They actually really believe that they're teaching the truth. Now, if that's not scary, I don't know what is, because that could be any of us. How does one know if, they're, if they are teaching rightly? How does one know if they're deceived by a false teacher or what they're hearing is right? If we can all be blinded. So just because a, a, a teacher uses the Bible in their teaching does not mean that what they're teaching is actually true. Does not even mean that what they're explaining is what that Bible passage actually intends to say. Just because they strongly assert that they're interpreting it rightly doesn't mean that they are. They can make confident assertions and still be absolutely wrong. So confidence isn't even enough. And so even if you're not a teacher, you need to know, how do I know that what this person is teaching is accurate? Well, I think one way to discern is if a, if a Bible teacher is, is using the Bible properly is, or if it's false teaching is, is, the, is, is identifying whether the Bible is playing a lead role in the teaching or a supporting role. Is, is the teacher using the Bible to defend their own ideas or are they seeking to explain what the Bible says? So you guys have probably seen this in other churches, right? Is the goal growth? could be financial or numeric. And so because the goal is growth, they teach to try and find, well, what's the way to best bring people in? And if, 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 by, if these verses are going to be controversial or people aren't going to come to the church, we're just not going to talk about it. I once had a, recently had a conversation with a pastor who said they deliberately have a dumbed-down doctrinal statement. It's like three points. We believe in the Trinity and we believe in Jesus. Because they don't want anybody not to come. And I was telling Chris uh, just, just a few hours ago, we were talking, I said, that is not what we want on our website. We want people to know exactly what we teach when they come here. We want them to know exactly what we're about. Right? Or is it, Cultural acceptance. Is it a desire to appear intellectual? So we're going to engage in all these philosophers. We're going to talk about what these philosophers think. And the goal is to show how smart they are rather than expose what the Bible actually teaches. Right? The, and so they use the Bible to kind of show how it supports Marx or it supports Nietzsche. Or, <laughs> yeah, imagine that. It, it supports whatever philosopher is popular. Or they want to look cool and relevant. Or they want to promote a political stance or a, a social stance or self-esteem and psychology. Like what's driving the teaching? Why do they choose the passage they choose? What's the goal? Is the Bible supporting one of these aims that are really worldly aims? Or are they using, are, is the Bible standing on itself wanting to be treated as an authority in and of itself? Right When the Bible begins to be used to support an agenda, rather than just simple obedience to what the Bible says, that church is on, a, is on the verge of falling into death, of falling off the cliff. And you guys have seen it in churches you've been a part of. It starts by just wanting to be a little more attractive, a little more smart, a little more wealthy, grow a little bit more, rather than 
I'm a, I'm a Christian and I'm here to submit to Christ. Christ, tell me what you want me to do. And really, I think if we're honest, it starts when there is in each of our hearts. Because what goes on in false teachers, what leads them astray is the same reason leads us astray. Or why we even find their teachings attractive. It's because there's something in us that's more drawn to what they're offering. Some form of worldliness, comfort, wealth, popularity. Rather than simple obedience to Christ. Those who are going to be prone to follow false teachers are those who in their heart already want what the false teacher is offering. They want that wealth. They want that comfort. They want that popularity. They want that candidate to be elected rather than God just tell me how to obey you. And so the one way to guard ourselves from false teachings is to guard our own hearts. We need to guard our own hearts and recognize is is what I want what Christ wants or is it just another form of worldliness. So if I could simplify it, two criteria to discerning false teaching. Again, is the primary aim to seek to explain what the Bible says or are they using the Bible to defend what they want it to say? If the Bible's playing a supporting role, more often than not, it's false teaching or it's going there fast. Second criteria Does their teaching result in certainty and biblical love? Does it lead to confidence in what the Bible says and confidence in who God is and what God's promised? And does it result in love? Like, is is the pastor loving? Is it obvious? Are the elders loving? Are the members of the church loving? Is a failure to love getting confronted? Or... Does it lead, instead of love, does it lead to speculation and division? Is there a lot of fighting and confusion and speculation, uncertainty and, you know, aimlessness? The Bible is, that, the Bible is certain. And therefore, it's, if it's interpreted rightly, it should point towards certainty and confidence. Except in those things where it's just not as certain as we'd like, like, prophecies we just looked at daniel 12 some of that's hard because it hasn't happened problem's not in the bible it's just we haven't experienced what's being prophesied there so let's pray lord we don't want to be deceived Lord, I'll be the first just to even ask for your grace that you would guard me and any other teacher who would teach in this church, whether it's in preaching or in Sunday school or to kids or in a community group. In any setting, God, that you would guard us from false teaching, that we would be diligent servants to study your word rightly. And Lord, give us wisdom to know how to encourage one another because no one's infallible. And give us grace as we help one another to to make sure we're, we're getting interpretation right. And not just interpreting it rightly, but then seeking to live out what it calls us to do. Lord, we want to be lovers of you and lovers of one another. We know that we need your grace and your help, your insight in order to do this right. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.